0: Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens.
1: And today, oh my God, we are so excited to be talking with Dr. Christopher Emden, very much one of our favorites, about kids in STEM and specifically how to get teens invested in and connected to learning about science and technology. But before we talk to him, we're gonna talk about those moments in parenting When we see that creative curiosity, that intellectual curiosity, like, gets sparked by something that either someone assigned them or a project. For me, I have two that are so clear. Did you have some, stuff? I had. You go first, and I'll go off of yours. The big one was we took a family trip to Israel, and the kids were missing a lot of school. And so some of the teachers gave their assignments, which was like, unnecessary, in my opinion. You know, there was busy work that was going on. They were going to be fine when they came back. But that's like the traditional model, right? Like if you're going to miss school, make sure the kids keep up. And so like, I understood it. And I didn't know it wasn't the right assignment until one of the teachers gave this assignment, which was, he gave them a quote from the Bible. And he said, it is etched into a rock somewhere in the state of Israel. Find out where it is and take a picture of yourselves there. That's excellent. (laughs) So for the entire trip, they had to ask everyone we were talking to. No one knew where it was. It was obscure. And they had to ask, explain what their assignment was. And they were younger. They were like, I think middle school, So, you know, going up to adults and talking to our friends wasn't, like, the most comfortable thing, also because they were asking a favor. So they had to go and explain what was the sentence, what was the assignment, and they had to do it over and over again. And finally, someone said, I think I know where it is. And so Dan took the kids on a hike. I took, like, one or two somewhere else. He took three kids on this hike. It was a big hike. They had to climb up a mountain. They found the, the stone or rock or monument or whatever it was and took a picture of themselves there. And to me, it was like there was so much energy around this one assignment. And they'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. I mean,
0: what a way to experience education. That is excellent. I can't believe I've never heard that story in the 14 years we've been together. That is an awesome one. That's like what Todd always says to me. He's like, I hold some back just to keep you guessing so that things always <laughs> seem fresh and spicy. That is such a good example. I wish I had one half as good <laughs> because I was really I was really challenged to come up with it. And the only thing I kept coming back to was that I couldn't come back to a specific assignment, but I was remembering instances where when the kid, and this was true for all of them, when the kid had more latitude in the assignment, that was where I saw the curiosity or the excitement about it. I felt like I kept going to all these like very prescriptive times and be like, ugh, a 10-page paper on blah. And I'm like, wait, I think I wrote that same paper when I was in high school. But the ones where they were challenged to like, you can pick any type of, it doesn't, you know, it. let's say it was for an English class where it was like, okay, the topic could be anything, but it has to somehow, you have to tie it back to a theme in something we just read, right? Like where it was like, where that th- there was a, um, a broad assignment, but I I really was stumped on it. I'm gonna give you some help
1: because the first time I saw this high school, I had school envy. And I would tell everybody I have school envy, but I knew my kid wouldn't. I had one kid who probably was very well suited for this school. It was a Montessori high school, but I also knew that kid was not going to go there. I loved walking into that building and seeing all these projects happening and all, all driven by the kids and so much
0: energy. And then you fulfilled my dream. Because I had a kid who, who went there. Yeah. So funny. Yeah, I mean, but it's funny. I was even stumped because that one was the most like obvious in some ways to try and come up with. But I really, <laughs> so it either speaks to one of two things. I paid zero attention to their assignments, which is probably what it speaks to more. And or I just have no memory of, of what they were working on. I really, I don't know. I Was there was thinking,
1: more enthusiasm for school when that kid went there?
0: Yeah. but the, Oh, no, I was starting to say about like, yeah, the kids who went to independent schools. I definitely saw, I did see a little more of that.
1: All right. I have one more story. I probably have more, but I'm going to share one more story right now, which is the assignment was, again, so simple. It was go outside and take pictures of birds. I mean, it's almost like lazy on the teacher's part, you know, <laughs> like really that's the assignment. And I took my kid over to the park I walk in a lot and and he was like irritated. This is such an annoying assignment. We were there for so long because nature is addictive. And all of a sudden we're looking for birds, we're listening to birds, we're finding birds. Birds look different than each other. And people kept stopping. They were so charmed by this kid doing his assignment out in nature. First, I was kind of like, really? Like, that's the assignment? You know, like, you just don't want to read a paper.
0: (laughs) Right. That might 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 both be true.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but as it turned out, it was so inspiring. Like, it led to such a shared activity between he and I. Mm -hmm. And really, like, I, I remember it all the time. I think about it all the time when I'm walking in the park, what that was like to really stop and listen. Because often I'm, I'm walking and walking and walking and talking and talking and talking. And someone will say, oh, look at that bird. And I'm like, oh, I wasn't even looking. I was really just walking and talking. And so this gave us pause. It gave us a moment where we, we didn't have any other goal than to be in nature. And it was really profound. And I just loved how, how I could see people watching us And being like so, you know, going to each other, oh, look at that kid over there. You know, just Mm. loving the whole experience. And clearly experiential for me is, and for my kids, are the moments where they are most deeply engaged and the memories are made.
0: Well, and it's interesting. I was thinking about some of the things that our listeners are going to hear from Chris. The specific assignments I can remember, they were not teens yet, (laughs) And maybe it speaks exactly (laughs) to what Chris talks about, which is, you know, as these kids get older and school is more rigid or assignment driven or whatever we want to say, the memories I have are the ones from elementary school where I remember one of our kids, they were assigned, like they had, there was like a Pellegrine falcon that the teacher who was really into nature, and I think actually inspired the love of nature. in one of our kids, they would watch The Nest and like, she would watch it for hours, like <laughs> would come home and like was just enthralled by it, like couldn't believe it. And like for years after she was in that class and it's it just, it's so interesting to see that. And I was thinking about another time where I was volunteering in one of their schools, I think it was for one of our sons and they were doing an IB program. And I thought it was so interesting to watch these kids who they were all engaged. I had a group of like five or six kids they could not—it was like someone was paying them to participate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, no, no. But how about this? Oh, no. What if we do this? What, like—and I'm like, wow. Like, when did something—and I and I think of that program, like, where it really lets kids' minds, like, really wander. But it is kind of interesting because my memories are much—are from when those early years. And it does make me wonder now that I'm thinking, putting this together— Did they not have that latitude just as they went into high school? You know, middle school certainly, but then definitely into high school. I'm having a really hard time remembering an assignment where it was pretty free-forming, you know, where they, I don't know, less prescriptive, for lack of a better word.
1: So I have one more story, and it was about a, a stretch in time where there was the camp director was running the middle school and also teaching in the high school. And so he ran it like camp and parents were outraged, really upset. Like, where's the curriculum? How are we going to evaluate? But those experiences totally stuck with my kids and me. So on um, Holocaust Memorial Day, they, and this is kind of creepy, but they were high school kids and it stuck with them and it made such a point, but they built like one of the bunks and they, they had precise dimensions, like it was all, an all-hands-on, and it required math and physics and, and engineering and, and reading and following directions, and also left a profound impact mm. on what space people had at the time. And so... You know, my kids, they don't remember. Who remembers what they learned in high school? Like, you know, I remember a time where I got called up to the front of the room and turned red, and so I was embarrassed, right? Like, that's what (laughs) I remember. But they remember this because they felt it. They lived it. They felt it. And it covered all of the subjects that you would want your kid. I mean, it was history. It was science. It was math. It was all covered in this. And, wow, what an impression it left,
0: No, I love that you said that they felt it because I do feel like through life where you can't recall those details, but you remember the feeling. So it's like when you just said that that they felt it, like that lingering, what that created, I think is so cool. Like they could probably, it would be interesting to hear when they had that feeling again, you know, like, was there something they worked on or they experienced where it's like, oh, that reminds me of that time where it could be totally different, but you're left with that, like, maybe. All right. Well, I mean, the truth is, I hope you'll be
1: thinking about the times when you saw the sparkle in your kids' eyes. It's exciting. Like, it feels like the way we should learn and kids should learn. And so you're going to, it's so exciting because you're about to hear from Dr. Christopher Emden. And I don't know, he blew me away with what he's doing in education. And again, not school envy, but just this idea that like <laughs> it could be so much more
0: meaningful for our kids. We can't wait for you to join us.
1: and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Dr. Christopher Emden is Chair in Curriculum and Teaching and Professor of Education at the University of Southern California. He also serves as Director of Youth Engagement and Community Partnerships at the USC Race and Equity Center. Emden previously served as director of the science education program at Teachers College, Columbia University. He's also an alumni fellow at the Hip Hop Archive and Hutchins Center at Harvard University. Emden is the creator of the hashtag Hip Hoped social media movement and Science Genius Battles. He's been named Multicultural Educator of the Year by the National Association of Multicultural Educators. STEM Access Champion of Change by the White House, and Minorities and Energy Ambassador for the U.S. Department of Energy. More still, he is the author of STEM, STEAM, Make Dream, also Ratchedemic, and For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood, and the rest of y'all too. Dr. Emden, thanks so much for being here with us. We see young children exploring the world. They take things apart. They sometimes put them back together. They build with sticks. It's not hard to notice their innate curiosity. So why and how has formal education suppressed that?
2: Here's the thing. I think that formal education kind of, it has a practice that's about making people be better. The the entire framing of the system of education is in this notion of improvement. Or getting people to this sort of benchmark that someone beyond the people who are being taught and their parents are even thinking about. And so when, when you when you approach teaching and learning from the, from the from the mindset that something always needs to be improved, you never get to see what's beautiful in it as it is. And this is not to say that we don't want young folks to be able to be more expansive or more thoughtful, but we have to approach them as though there's something innately beautiful and brilliant in who they are. Schools see them as something to work on rather than something to explore or something to expand. And I think that we need to work on a school system that really focuses on an interrogation of the beauty and the magic of children and the exploration of what is wonderful and intelligent about them to begin with. And if you do that, then you see beauty in them. And when you see beauty in them, they're willing to explore. You don't make them into something they're not. You make them choose and desire to be something bigger than what they are.
0: So let's talk about your book. In, in STEM, STEAM, Make Dream, you open with your own story about being a curious kid. What did that look like? Tell us more about Chris as a young guy, <laughs> as a young kid.
2: I wanna tell you an amazing story of being loved and accepted and valued and treasured. And unfortunately, my experiences in school were the opposite. I was told all these things that I was, which made me think that there were all these things that I wasn't. You know, I always heard, you're funny, you're cool, you dress well. And I was like, what about all the other things in the world? Like, no one ever told me, like, you're a scientist, or you're brilliant, or you know, so and, and I always say to parents that children learn more about what you expect of them, not just by what you say to them, by what you don't say to them. We are shaped, our identities are shaped not just by the words we hear, but of the words that we that we are trained to believe are never for us. And so we have to be intentional about really naming all of the things that you want your child to be and exploring all the things that society might be telling them that they're not. So my story was not loved, not treasured. And I I had the luck to stumble into college and sit into someone's science lab and ask one question that I thought was really weird. And she said, oh, my gosh, that's a brilliant question. And I was like, what? It was brilliant. Me? And that set me on a trajectory towards exploring my scientific self. And why I love being on this podcast is because as a person who's worked with teenagers my entire life, I have insight into parenting teenagers that most folks wouldn't have, right? I get to see them when they are at a school and they're putting on a performance of their identity in the same way that I did when I was a kid. And so I want to be able to tell parents like the other side of the story that those who work with them every day see that you may not so that we can work together as a team to help them to be able to envision new possibilities for themselves.
1: Tell us what that story is right now that you want to tell parents that you get to see and they don't get to see.
2: They are 13, 14, 15, 16, and they are no different in personality than when they were three, four, five, and six. Teenagers want to play. Teenagers want to be loved. They have these moments where they're like, no, I hate you, you're an adult. That's because they're still figuring out who they want to be. But in the midst of their challenges, they want to be told, you know, I disagree with you, or you're doing something I didn't ask you to, but I still love you. And even when they act like they reject the love, when they hear it enough, they understand that they are loved. Two, they want a chance to try out the multiple identities that are going through their mind. You ever see a 15-year-old and on Monday they love hip-hop, Tuesday they they love rock, Wednesday, it's about Harry Potter. Friday, they are punk and skateboarders. But that's what they're supposed to be doing as teenagers. They're trying on identities. And so it's we have to be able to give them permission to try on a bunch of different identities until they find the one that fits. And we oftentimes lock them into one that is comfortable for us or the one that we don't like at all. And when we say we don't like it at all, they're like, ooh, that's the one I'll choose. And the one that they choose oftentimes is not the one that they are. So I would say, like, let them choose their identities. And then the last one, which really aligns to the book, Stem, Steam, Make, Dream, is that every child, every teenager has the potential and the ability to be scientifically literate. Doesn't mean they're going to be all scientists. Doesn't mean they're all going to be engineers. But through Stem, Steam, Make, Dream, I want parents to know that as they choose their multiple identities, the hip-hop kid, the rock kid, the punk kid, the, the stylish kid, whatever else it is, they could be each of those things and scientifically literate, and mathematically in touch and in tune. And that's a thing that we can add on to whoever we are to be able to be, you know, I would say more successful in the world, right? Like if you if you attach science and math to anything, you're a better thing at that thing, right? Uh, you know, you're like, like I'm a science and math clothing designer. I'm a science and math artist. I'm a okay. science and math. Like, and and so I want us to get to the point where we attach that STEM identity to all the things that we are.
1: Okay, I want to ask a follow-up. This idea of trying on different faces to see who they ultimately want to be and may change again after that, it is generationally hard for us to do that as parents. Like, we want to tick boxes. It makes us feel like we understand our kids. And what you're describing is like just kind of throwing everything up in the air and seeing where it falls. So do you have any advice for us getting out of the way?
2: Throw everything up in the air, but there are a couple of things that have to be consistent, right? Love is consistent, care is consistent, trust is consistent. And everything else is going to be a thing that's going to like knock you off your feet, but you know, as as long as there's love, there's care, there's trust and those things are always in place, we're going to be just fine. You're throwing everything up in the air in many ways, but love, care, trust must be, remain consistent. And then also I always say to parents, go through your own stuff we've sort of been conditioned to think it looks that way. But if you go back to when you were a teenager, don't you wish you had permission to try on multiple identities? So, so it's like, step out of where you are, go back to where you were when you were 13, 14, 17, 18, like Go back to that moment and try to be the person that you needed and wanted rather than the person that you think you need to be for your child.
0: All right, so let's, for parents that are listening, right? if you're looking at your kid and you're like, okay, he or she has lost that, curiosity. What do we do? Tell it, give us those concrete, what can I do to awaken that again in a kid? If I'm like, oh my God, I love what Chris is saying, but man, this, this kid has lost that already.
2: Curiosity gets reawakened through play. It's the only thing that we know that can sort of resuscitate lost curiosity or even lost passion. And so I would say, let your children play and question because like, you know, what, what do you mean by play? You sit back, you provide them with things, right? An experience. We're going to cook together. We're going to, you know, go to the skate park together. I want you to just go out there and do your thing. And then through that, I'm asking you questions about the experience that brings you joy. Like part of good parenting is being a phenomenal sociologist, right? Like you, you want to you wanna be able to be to build a strong enough relationship with the population that you're studying that they will invite you in to the inner sanctum of their thinking, Right? And then when you're there with them, don't take control over it. You sit back and watch them experience it. And then you're looking to identify the moments of joy, right? So when you're at that skate park, there was that one moment where they hit that one trick. Oh, my gosh, that brought joy. That's going to be the place where I ask questions about and bring curiosity. All right, we we went on a beach walk. They didn't want to go the entire time. And there was one moment when the water touched the little bit of the toes and you saw a giggle and that you write that down. And that becomes a thing that you have a conversation about later and you pose questions around. So it's, li- it's really about studying your child to find the moments of childhood innocence that reemerge and then having those moments be what you construct a dialogue around.
1: I can picture those moments, some of those moments in my kids' lives. So it's, it's really beautiful. You know, it's always fascinated me that no teacher ever says to a kid, you're not that good at English. Right. Like that's not a thing that comes up. But as you say, you say that the narrative is that students should suffer in science and math classes until they get a job that pays well and that this job and the money it provides will then make them happy. So there's this whole separate narrative going on about math and science. And why did you choose to make STEM your focus?
2: I have a couple of reasons why I chose STEM. You know, the, the first is, it's just so damn cool. <laughs> I mean, you know, these are the subjects that help us to make sense of life, right? You know, the fabric in our clothing and the and the plastics in these cool glasses and the tin in my ceiling and the wood on the floor. I don't want to just enjoy them by washing them. I want to understand how they came to be. And that's what I want children to understand. Like, I want them to be so curious about the things that they love already. They want to find out what lies beneath. And finding out what lies beneath it means then that you have to be a scientist. So so the the first thing is really selfish. I just want everybody to, to enjoy the beauty and the wonder of discovery. But the second is more practical, right? If we don't have more populations in the United States interested in STEM, we will not be able to solve the kind of problems that we have that are huge. Climate change is real. Identifying new forms of energy is real the sort of limitations and how we're able to sort of cure diseases is real. Like we, we we have these major huge questions that are still unsolved and it requires folks who are scientifically and mathematically inclined and creative to solve them. But we don't have enough people doing it because we tell them when they're in school that they can't or that it's not for them. And so, you know, the first part is selfish because the subjects are amazing. The second part is because we need it. And the third is also like, if you're working in STEM, you like you make 26 times more dollars than folks who are not, right? I mean like we got to also be like financial here. Like you probably want your child to be in in STEM disciplines, but not as a STEM worker and their distinctions, but as a STEM creative and innovator. I think schools create STEM workers, right? People who are able to like oh, I can solve that problem, I can create that equation, like I can memorize more facts. And those folks are always the folks who are like on the bottom end of the STEM hierarchy. The folks who are really transforming the world through STEM are the creatives, the imaginatives, the artists who also have a scientific sort of leaning. And so I want to create a new generation that is more creative and mathematical, you know, scientific and sort of innately like uh, curious. And we need folks who are at the intersections of these worlds that that we've been told are separate.
0: That is an excellent segue into the next question. So So teachers, so you've said teachers need to find their best selves to be the best teacher they can be. Teaching is performance art. Tell us more about it.
2: This podcast alone, right? I can tell when a point that I've shared resonates with Stephanie because her eyebrows just subtly raise, (laughs) right? You know, I can be in a room with a young person where they're doing something that I don't like, and I don't want to say, stop that right away and put them on the spot. But there's something I can do with the fur in my brow that they know exactly... Every good parent knows this, right? It's like the look, the mom look, (laughs) right? We're like they know, oh, she's not happy, right? I think that teachers need to learn that dimension that you you teach with your body, not just your words, right? Give me more as the hands flutter back and forth, right? It's that small as you pull your fingers together and see how small something was. It was that big, it was that wide. And you know, I work in higher education and some of my work is training teachers and they know all their content, but they don't know people. And so I truly believe that you, know, you have to understand people teaching is a performance art. It's the ultimate performance art. And it's a merging of performance artistry and content knowledge. And once again, at the intersections of those things is where the magic lies. Moms know this well, dads know this well, most teachers know this when they're with their kids, but they don't use it when they're in the classroom. So I just want good mom and dad knowledge to be part of teacher preparation.
1: Okay, so in many school systems, it's a little bit of a pyramid. And the, only some kids get to rise to the top in terms of how we are defining success. Is there a way to change that so that all kids feel successful in school?
2: I'm going to even expand that even more, Sue, because I love that question. The answer is yes, we can do things to make all young people feel successful in school because every young person enters into the classroom with a particular form of genius and school subjects aren't identified around people's forms of genius. So like there's kinesthetic genius, there's artistic genius, there's scientific genius, there's mathematical genius, there's performance genius. And so, and I think that those things need to be perceived and seen as subjects, right? Like math is a subject. I want kids to know math. But guess what? Personality, good personality, like being a good person should be a subject. Like, how do we learn to develop your humanity? Oh, man, how you care for people? And that should be a subject. And some folks are innately genius at that subject. And they should be valued and appreciated and celebrated and get good grades for being good people, right? I think the way that we reimagine teaching and learning or schooling is to allow multiple forms of intelligence to be, to, 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 to be brought forth. But I also believe in content knowledge. I think content knowledge should come. It's almost like an afterthought to being good people. Let me explain. Because people are going to be like, what? <laughs> He's a science and math guy? And he said, content is the afterthought? <laughs> I can't believe this. Someone is listening right now and is like, I will stop. you know, like. So let me explain. Look, if a child is great at basketball, I can teach that child to be great at physics. You say, wow. If they're brilliant on that court, I then start appreciating the genius in the basketball. And then I'm saying, look... Guess what? If Do you know why the ball bounces back and forth that way? I've got a scientific formula for that. Do you know that if you throw it against the backboard at a particular angle, I can almost guarantee that your shot gets better? Let me tell you the, the formula behind that. And all of a sudden I can awaken that child's desire for scientific genius and mathematical genius through my appreciation of their basketball skills, right? And And I think that teaching and learning should be more about utilizing what folks love as the anchor of their learning, not lowering the academic expectations, keeping the expectations high, but recognizing that the path to those expectations must be different. I always say this, rigor is not rigor mortis, right? It, it does not have to look like death for it to be intellectually stimulating. In fact, I would argue that if there's joy, the potential for academic rigor is increased exponentially.
0: Oh, I love that. That's a good one, Chris. Now that you have your own kids, has anything changed for you in your discussion of STEM in the classroom?
1: And before you answer, I just want to say I'm a very good sleuth. It took me so long to find out that you had children. You are good at hiding them.
2: <laughs> oh, did you? Oh, really? Am I good? I, you know, I I have these babies, man. Cindy just turned nine. Malcolm will be five in July. And they have changed. I wrote STEM, Steam, Make Dream because of my children. Anybody looks at my previous work, it's really like... Critiquing schools, offering some strategies. I, I just wrote a, a book, Ratchet that came out right before STEM Team Make Dream, which is about sitting at the intersections of your ratchet and your academic. You know, like I wrote those books, and those are in the sort of intellectual tradition where I'm in. I wrote STEM Steam Make Dream because I saw my children do things and ask questions that I was like, Oh my God, are my kids like the most brilliant children on the planet? And then I started asking people, and they were like, No, all two-year-olds do that. <laughs> They're like, no, all eight-year-olds do that. And I'm like, well, why aren't they doing that when they're 12 anymore or 13? If they all, you like every child does this amazing stuff. What happened? And you know what happens? School happens. And I decided to write a book to, to let parents and teachers know that they don't have to get in the way of their kids being scientists and mathematicians. So my kids changed me. My kids wrote this book for me. And two sort of teaching things or parenting things that I've discovered... Through them, is you know the first one is I never tell my children I'm proud of you and then end it. I tell them that sometimes, but instead of telling them I'm proud of them, I ask them how do you feel when they do something they should be proud of. So if they do something amazing, I'm like oh my gosh, I'm proud. I like I fight the earth, say I'm so proud of you, and I say how do you feel right now, right? And Sydney will say I feel joyful and I feel excited. And I feel good, and I feel warm. And I'm like, whoa, you must be so proud of you. She goes, yeah, I am so proud of me. Because I want to take the emphasis out of looking for justification from a parent or any adult. And that, that feeling of proud of myself, I want to hold on to forever. And if a child is proud of themselves for their academic accomplishments, that will last in the rest of their lives. And then the second thing I always say is, Guess what? Everyone's a genius. Everyone's super smart, but not everybody is gonna be the most dedicated and hardworking person in the room. And that's something you can work on if you wanna be super, super special. Because you, as you are, you're just as good as anyone else. But you can be the one that outworks them and outthinks them, you know? And that's not something that you have naturally, that's something that you have to do. And so those two things are super essential to my parenting journey. And I I suddenly tell stories about that in Steam Make Dream. All right, this is a big shift,
1: but really fascinating to me. What is hashtag hip-hop ed?
2: Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorite things to talk about ever. Ten years ago, before Elon Musk bought Twitter, I logged on (laughs) one day because Jay-Z had written a book that was a really good book. And I'm like, is anyone using this in classrooms? Because kids love Jay-Z, and this is a good book and it'll be a great text. And I'm like tweeting into like an empty room and no one responded. And I was like, let me try this hashtag thing. This is hip hop. And I'm asking about education, hashtag hip hop And like one person responded. And literally that was like 11 years ago. And now a decade later, every Tuesday night at 8.15 Eastern, I got like a hundred plus people who will log on and we'll have conversations about the intersections of hip hop and education. And it's grown from a hashtag to a conference and to a movement of educators, students, parents, and young people who want to explore the intersections of hip hop and education.
0: And why is that work so important? Help us understand tying education to the culture of young
2: people. What does that do? Hip hop is this this thing that's like the heartbeat of, of, of this generation, right? Like, they all revolve around it. Even if they're into other musical genres, there's this one hip-hop song that resonates. For some folks, it's all they eat, live, breathe. And my whole thing is this. If I am a teacher for that generation, and it's a cultural phenomenon that has captured their imagination, and I want to be an effective teacher, then I've got to understand it, and I've got to know it. And most importantly, my knowing and understanding it allows me to be able to help them to navigate through it, right? Because not every hip-hop song do I want my child to just, like, verbatim be into. But if I don't like hip-hop writ large, they're going to take that thing up and they're going to interpret things in ways I don't want to. So if I'm engaging in a culture with them, I can guide them through it. We can have really powerful conversations about problematic subject matter. But most importantly, I can connect that hip-hop to math. Like I did a thing called Science Genius a couple years ago where I had kids write raps about science content. And the first thing I got was, nobody writes raps about science. Like rap is about other stuff. And then I challenged them to do it. And these kids were writing like, oh, like, oh my gosh, like, mind, like, like, it will blow your mind the depth of scientific knowledge being expressed through hip hop by fourteen-year-olds, and it just go, It went to show me that if you attach high content, rich content to what they love, they will make magic. That's why hip hop in so many ways, and it, and then it also it's like just culture. It's ever shifting, ever evolving. It's transforming, and you don't want to be, like, old. Like, you want to be old, like, chronologically, right? But you don't want to be, like, played out. <laughs> like, I'm uh, old, uh. right? Like, I'm 40-plus, right? But, I, like, I kick it with, like, teenagers, right? And, like, they, they, they think I'm cool. And not because I'm trying to be like them. I'm totally me, but I also know where they are. And they are, admire that, and they respect that. And because of that, we can talk about physics, and chemistry, right? And and I think the closer you are to recognizing the beauty in their culture, the more they're willing to allow you to take them on a journey in pursuing content knowledge.
1: Early in this conversation, you mentioned that you were described as cool. And I want to say that in my whole life, and I turned 61 yesterday, no one has ever used that word for me. So I think you come at this with a little bit of an advantage. This next thing that I want to talk about is... I'm on both sides of this story. So one is, you know, we talk about what kids wear as like who they are, and they are bad kids if they dress the wrong way and good kids if they dress the right way. I see that as a problem, but I also have seen in my own house that there had to be a line where... Like one day a kid got out of school and there was way too much under the skirt showing, under the the shorts showing, and I was like, okay, here's the line that that doesn't go to school. How do you not make it about who they are and have it come at them in a different way, which isn't like a uniform?
2: My whole thing is always why. So it's like, oh man, that's an interesting outfit. I wouldn't wear that. Why are you into it? What is it about this that I'm not seeing? Why I like the question of why to young people, first they're going to be like, just because. are like, oh, okay, that's fine. But I really do want to know why. And that might mean that one day there's going to be an outfit that you don't care for and you're going to be all day cringing like, oh my God, my baby's going to go home. Like, it's going to, there's going to, look, you have to be okay with the one day that you're not going to approve. Okay? Like, parents just understand that. You're, 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 it's good. But as long as it's not a pattern of something that will put them at harm, they're going to be all right. And then you ask why. And sometimes the why has nothing to do with what you thought it was, right? So somebody's like, oh, she's wearing a a, a short skirt because she's, like, exploring her sexuality. And it's like, no, I saw this artist wear it, and I thought it would look good. It's like, sometimes we make all these assumptions about the reasons behind things that are not that deep. And your assumptions oftentimes then get attached to their perception about the thing. So a child wears, you know— something that's revealing or something that like shows off his muscles and you're like, you can't wear that. And they're like, why? It's just a cool shirt. It's like cause of your muscles and your body and sexuality and exploitation. And now they're like, Whoa, I wasn't fully ready for that yet. I wasn't seeing this. And then you've taken them down a road that you didn't have to go to yet. That sometimes is not even developmentally appropriate. So before you make the assumptions, ask the why. And even when you're asking the why, understand that there might be a day, an hour, a minute, dare I say, a week where you're going to be like, oh, my goodness, fight it. This too shall pass.
0: All right, Chris. So we're going to wrap up with the question we ask all of our guests. Tell us the biggest myth about teens and education.
2: The biggest myth is often that young people don't want to be challenged. I hear it all the time. Like, this generation is just so lazy. They just don't want to put in the work. They don't. They love being academically challenged. They love being intellectually stimulated. The context in which we do it is problematic. So I really think that's the biggest myth. Like, these kids want to solve complex science problems. Like, they want to balance more equations. You're like, you're, you're, no, they do. But we've not set the appropriate context for them to be intellectually stimulated. And they want it. And that's a huge myth.
1: Chris Emden, you did not disappoint. In fact, you over-delivered with already high expectations. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What a treat to get to talk to you.
2: Thank you, Sue and Stephanie. This is an amazing platform. I can't wait to listen to the podcast back, but I've also been digging into past episodes. You guys are brilliant.
0: Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com.
1: If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a
0: favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteamag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.
1: Your team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer, Michael D'Aloya, plus producer, Hannah Leach, and audio engineer,
0: Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time.